This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my People of the Book. My guest today is Sarah Bullen, author of many books, a multi-published author. But specifically today, we are going to be talking about her recently published book, titled Love and Above, A Journey into Shamanism, Coma and Joy. Sarah, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Lovely to be here. And I just have to check, is it shamanism or shamanism? So interestingly enough, that title is for our international readers. Because in Africa, where we live, or in South Africa, we actually call it Sangoma, or we call it traditional African medicine. And that is the journey in this book is going to draw the reader into. But because the book has gone international, we put on the cover a word that other people can understand. And it really is just about the fact that we are using older methodologies of healing, of connecting, of being in the presence of something bigger, some sort of spirit. So that's why we use that. But shamanism is actually a Northern Canadian term. Yes, so just something that they can identify with. And just to um, let my listener know, as I said, Sarah is a multi-published author, an international writing coach, and also a literary agent. And she's been mentoring authors for 17 years to share and tell stories. You've written, um, you have well over 100 of your writers have, have published books. That's incredible. You lead international writing retreats and adventures all over the world, globally, Greece, Italy, Kenya, Spain. You're also a ghostwriter and your own story is inspirational. And um, just to give brief, brief background, you were just 34 years old with a very young family when your husband discovered he had a brain tumor and he pursued a, a shamanic path to fight the cancer. And this story is the journey that you went on. And we are going to be chatting about that. The book itself is scattered, actually, your husband, Llewellyn, he was on a journey actually before he discovered this brain tumor. Am I correct? Absolutely correct. So he had, he was a filmmaker. He was quite well known and made commercials and films. And he was already working with a South African Sangoma by the name of Colin Campbell, really working deeply at that point on um, going into pursuing a spiritual path. And so when the symptoms of the tumor started, he didn't think it was anything medical he thought and understood that this was the spiritual breakthrough he was looking for he that he was connecting to the other realms and this is what he was experiencing it was only later of course once the diagnosis happened Janice that we realized that it was actually a tumor pressing on his brain creating these oral sensations and connections yeah and the jury's still out and as he says at one point a doctor calls it one thing I call it another thing can the two worlds ever meet? Yeah. And you were lucky enough to be able to intersperse into throughout the book excerpts from Llewellyn's diary, which is quite, quite incredible. And it's amazing to be able to follow his thought process and to, to follow his own personal journey to see what he's thinking. But what I actually loved was in one of the very, very first um, excerpts that, that are included, um, he, he says, little did I know I was about to uncover one of the biggest unanswered questions of our modern age, 
the question seemed to be in no particular order, what really goes on in area 51? <laughs> and I love that because it just goes a long way in showing the quirkiness of his true personality and his true nature. And we get to know who Llewellyn truly was through, through something like that, apart from getting to know him through those diary um, excerpts, which, which are, are something very, very special. And obviously we're going to delve into that in more depth, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to People of the Book. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm Janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book. And today I am chatting to Sarah Bullen about her book, Love and Above, and the journey that she went on with her family, with her late husband, Llewellyn, when he discovered that he had a brain tumor. So tell me, Sarah, we think we know what a Sangoma is. But at the time, this all came into your home, directly into your home. It wasn't just something that happened outside. He didn't just go off on a journey and go and discover himself elsewhere. It came into your home. And as you say, he was working with with Colin, but then he started working with Colin's brother. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of ceremony. And your young daughter, well, she was very young at the time. And as we know, young children are very outspoken. They're not scared to ask questions. And she asked, what is a Sangoma? So, so tell me, what is a Sangoma? Well, for those who might not actually know. The most literal sense, a Sangoma is a, it's called a coma doctor and it's a doctor of ritual. And there are various comas that they, that Sangomas learn. So they are gifted things. So you may, for example, get a rainmaker. So they have the coma or the ritual of rainmaking. The particular coma that my husband was started to study after the chemotherapy, after the brain surgery, was he delved into the world of men's rites of passage. Often called in South Africa, going to the mountain. And really that was my beginning point of really starting to understand that there's so much out there other than what upbringing has told us. I was a journalist. I wanted facts. I wanted figures. Um, And I was suddenly pulled into a world in which there weren't any. It was a world of belief and faith and trust. And it was a world of magic. And I spent a huge amount of time trying to disprove these things. I started to investigate and I was quite resentful, a bit taken aback by all the trips up into the bush. But slowly, I felt myself being quite deeply drawn into a spirituality that I felt so much more rooted and grounded in the African continent I lived on. And my children along with us. So we had um, Ndumba built and Ndumba is a medicine man's hut. Um, It's where they keep their herbs and their medicines. That was in our garden. My husband would do his prayers there. I started doing daily prayers and prayers in the African tradition. You pray to um, a God, but you pray through the ancestors because they believe that the that God's too big to speak to in a way, but a little bit like your Catholic faith. They pray through somebody else or the, the Jewish faith. You don't go often direct to God. You pray through other people and they pray through the ancestors. And I myself started, I was a magazine publisher. I was a journalist. I was an international author already. And there I was quietly starting to delve very deeply into something that was just so off the grid, so crazy. And yet, 
it was calling my soul to it. I, th- I think it's amazing that as, firstly, in the Jewish faith, we do, we actually pray directly to God. I think it's amazing. As you say, you were a journalist. Journalists deal in facts. They go hunting for the facts. And the fact that you were open to him pursuing this, I think, firstly, is amazing. And that led you, the fact that you were so open-minded in in being able to be open to his journey in pursuing this led you to something so unexpected that led you to pursue this and led you to something that you welcomed into your life. And I don't want to give too much of the book away, but because um, we're going to move forward. Into, no, no, no into, spoilers. No spoilers. Okay. into what happened then, because things get even more crazy. Can I read you a little bit of an extract yes, just to do. really try and bring together kind of the experience of it? So I'm going to this is called uh, a chapter called Wild Rapture. I'm in Botswana again. This is the third trip I've taken up here in the two years in which we've been on parallel treatments and healing journeys. Life is slowly returning to a level of normality. The well wishes have trailed off. MRIs are less terrifying and all have come back clear. And the work in Venda and Botswana is heating up. The night is electric and the relentless call of the drum stretches into the air under the African stars. The heated conversations in the hot bush Over lunch, we talk about a growing flood of Westerners who are coming to find answers for life in more traditional cultures. Neil Campbell believes that the soul is searching for older ways that are more in tune with the earth. That night, earlier, a Londoner, Henry Fletcher, and I crawled together into a traditional African steaming hut under open skies. Before we entered the hut, we danced around and around in a circle on the full moon in the middle of the bush to the drums and the calls of our own voices. Then we got on the knees, our knees and entered the tent. Herbs were put on the fire, herbs for joy and beauty and luck. And when the songs ended, it could have been hours or days later. It was timeless. There was a, we all crawled out of the baking hot steaming hut. We were splashed with water and stood, some naked and some in sarongs under the ancient stars. This is totally wild. The Londoner Henry smiled. I felt it wild. So that's just a taste of some of the things that we started to immerse ourselves in and get up to. Me as a journalist watching a little bit, one foot in the skeptic, another foot deeply in the process. You were experiencing it for yourself. You weren't experiencing it from the point of view as a journalist that wanted to go back and report on it. You wanted to experience it for the experience, to see what it felt like. I couldn't help but it. I was drawn into this something, this this movement, this calling, um, and it became very much a part of my life as well. Exactly, which is why later down the line, when I was ended up in a coma, the journey I took there was a very similar path, which was connecting to this otherworldly stuff. So we're going to talk about that a bit later, but I want to talk about the journey that Llewellyn took. So he was then cleared of the cancer for quite some time. So it was always going to be a terminal situation, the the kind of tumor he had, but he lived for four years before the tumor finally came back with a vengeance. Okay, and then when it did come back, he again in one of the one of the quotes from his diary, he says something that I, I just found this quote is such a deep quote. And I found myself reading it over and over again. He said, I feel humbled and devastated in equal measure. And I think it's something that I, I don't think that you can quite comprehend 
until you have been through something quite as devastating as that. Did he, did he, I mean, you're saying that you knew it was a terminal situation. Did he believe this was something he could make go away? Yeah, so absolutely that he did. He had absolute deep faith. There is a little extract in which he speaks about a little voice in his head that is accepting that there's something serious going down and that it could be his end game. But he chose the path of choosing life all along. He listened to everything the doctor said and he chose to explore another way anyway. It's a very interesting thing because I myself am a cancer survivor and it's a very interesting, you know, and the thing about this book is I didn't, it's not about cancer. It's not about what Not at all. Not at all. But how do you choose within all of the things that life are going to throw you, cancer, illness, how do you choose to live with joy anyway? And I think that he found that before I did. So my journey took longer and it plays out much later in the book. So within this, 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 this illness he had, he chose to go, well, I'm going to just have the best fun play a game, see what I can do, see what's possible out there and still live. And we so are, we're end, going to get, we're going to get to that a bit later because that is actually the message that he left you with because that was not how you were living life while he was going through that. And that was not how you saw life beforehand at all. But we're going to get to that a bit later. I'm Janice Leibovitz. This is People of the Book, and I'm talking to Sarah Bullen. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. You are listening to People of the Book, and today I am talking to Sarah Bullen about her book, Love and Above. And it's predominantly about the journey that she and her late husband Llewellyn took, um, his journey into becoming a Sangoma, his journey with a brain tumour, and their life together through that, before, after, and now. Sarah, beforehand you were, you were talking about how Llewellyn lived with joy and how you had to basically get through it at the time. And the book talks about that. And you spoke about earlier your resentment, actually, um, when he decided to go on this journey to become a Sangoma and and you basically were just getting through. You had two small children and you had to you had to do life. And he was discovering himself and you know, but but you know, you've got to just live day to day. And but then as you say, the cancer returned, the brain tumor returned, and shockingly enough, I mean he did he deteriorated, but then when things got really bad, you fell desperately ill. Absolutely. I mean, it couldn't have got more crazy. So we had my gorgeous filmmaker husband, who on the very last stage of a four-year battle against cancer. I had been, as you said, I'd been running the house. I had a big job. I was a group editor of a, a magazine stable, earning the bucks, looking after the children. I was angry. I was resentful. I was really stuck in life, in the grind, in just getting by. And um, I was a healthy, fit 34-year-old, and I was in a very high-stress situation. I had a husband dying. I had a big job. 
one lunchtime I felt quite sick and I went for a jog. I was putting a magazine to bed. It didn't feel good. I got into bed that night. And within 24 hours, I was in ICU. I was on life support and I was in a coma and I was to stay in that coma for almost three weeks. What actually was wrong with me? Well, the diagnosis was flu. So something had happened in between all of this that was out of the realm of medical science, out of the realm of what we understand should happen, that something had pulled me after my husband's long journey into the shamanism, something had suddenly happened to me that I could not control, which is what I'd been trying to do the whole time. I'd controlled everything and everybody. And suddenly I was, all of that was taken away from me. And there's a little extract as I'm wheeled into ICU in the book that was really quite, um, of course I don't remember it because I was in apoxia and all my organs were shutting down and I was in, um, I had no breathing capacity at all. I had a double lung blackout. The, I think they called you a medical anomaly at the time. They didn't actually know. And they I didn't say this know what was wrong. I said this. I didn't see the ICU doors as they opened, nor as they closed. I didn't know they were going to close on me and the life I'd known for the past 34 years. I didn't even know I'd entered a room that, in which I was going to have to fight. This was going to be the fight of my life. I knew none of this. I was too far gone already. My brain and organs starved of oxygen, but I didn't exist beyond those doors anymore. I left all that behind me. Not Nothing came through. Not my children, not by my beliefs, not my status, not my family, not my husband. I'd left him sleeping that day and I would never speak to him again. And it really was that experience. And I speak later in the book about an underworld journey of having to go through a massive initiation in life. And, and that felt like what I was doing in that, in that process, that three, almost four week long coma I was in. Now you say you were never going to speak to him again in this world, but you did in fact speak to him because you were traveling somewhere else during this coma that you were in. And you met with Llewellyn in another realm somewhere. And here's a wild thought that I thought while I was reading this. Did it occur to you? Because it occurred to me, <laughs> my small little mind. Was this your way? I mean, you had been through so much and you had had to deal so with so much and you had had to keep control of so much. Was this your way now of saying, right, I'm giving up now, I'm handing it over, checking out for a bit, and this is my way of, of being able to say goodbye? to him that's a really really interesting question and and look spoiler alert is of course that I did live <laughs> so people spoiler alert. sorry so, well, so many um months later my sister said to me that a few days before I fell into the coma we had been out to dinner and I had said to her Liz I cannot watch this. I don't want to be here. But what I will tell you is it wasn't a conscious thought. It was a unconscious thought. It was a, it was this bigger soul journey. And also I didn't, you know, when you're in a coma, so a lot of the book is about what happens in the coma, right? And it's what I've spoken about all over the world because I was in a very long coma and it's very interesting to people what happens when you're in a coma that long and what happens to the, let's call it the soul, the spirit, when the body is left in a bed, where do you go? This thing that is bigger than the body. Your energy, it's and, the energy. Right. Whatever the name we put to it, where, where does it go? And I went lots of places. 
So there's a whole series. And in the book, as you've read, you know, I go through the stages of coma because it was a long coma. And initially I was just in a drug induced state. But over time, I started to move away from the hospital. I moved away further and further. I started traveling around the world as recognizable by you and I. And then I left that and I went into what I would call other worlds. And it is in exactly as you said, in one of those worlds that I met up with him. And we went through what is a, what I'm going to call a very traditional ritual in which we said goodbye. And a woman took me and the men took him and they were singing. And, 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 and in that, and as you read in the book, I said, no, I couldn't let him go. Still then in this place that should have been peaceful and beautiful. And it was all of these things. There was a grace and a surrender. I was still fighting for him then, not yet for me. I found that interesting. The other thing I found interesting was, you know, when they say that when someone is in a coma and they say, talk to them and read to them and play the music because they can hear you, you could hear none of that. You said you heard none of that. Absolutely nothing. And my mother, bless her heart, sat by my bed, literally didn't leave. And I, I felt like Santa, you, you didn't need to. Um, something happens, and I, I think it's for the people outside yes. of the coma. It, it, it's for them. They need to feel, they need to be there. But when you're in that level of some process, be it medical or be it a soul process, you are on that journey alone. So I heard nothing. They, ha- they were playing songs, podcasts, that people come, they had you name it, what happened by the body that was lying in that ICU ward, I was not there. I was realms away. So I knew, I really knew nothing. And when I woke up, to the point that in that space of uh, of transition, I was not even a person. I was not a name. I didn't have children. I didn't know anything. I was just a being of light. So there was no earthly attachment pulling me back at all. That only came much later. I didn't even, as you probably read, when I woke up, I didn't even know I had children. But for their photos by my bed, and I looked up at those two photos, and I knew who they were. I knew they were my children, but still there was no pullback to the earthly things, even though I was then conscious and awake. And as you said, that that waking up, you said it wasn't like on TV and in the movies where you wake up and you blink and it wasn't a gentle awakening at all like they show you in the movies and describe in the books and it wasn't like that at all and you were quite um angry and wild and um you you throw through some choice words at (laughs) and you were rather violent it's uh and it comes across as quite amusing but it really isn't and it's quite it's 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 tragic and it must have been devastating for your family and your support and for everyone who was sitting waiting for you to return and to to see the trauma that it caused you to come back right well I mean at at that point you know I had under a 10% chance I had been in a coma for so long that all my organs were failing And they, you know, at that point, my husband was down the road in a coma himself and dying. I was in a coma and dying. We were were the golden couple, right? We were just like filmmakers and journalists and people were absolutely shocked. Lawyers were coming and we're doing wills. And in the book, I talk about a point in which 
I, I suddenly realized I had to come home and, and it was a very specific moment and what actually happened in the real world, because in the book, there's a thread between what actually happened in the real world. And then that time, what happened was around the world, they did prayer circles for me. And it did not matter. My sister was a Buddhist. My brother's a Christian. My other person in Saudi was doing Muslim chants. But there was the Jewish side of my family. It was all over. My sister's an esoteric. She was drumming and chanting. And something happened out there in the nothingness I was floating in. And it was just a thought. And it just went, come home. And it really was the first conscious thought I made. And as you suggested after that, I had to fight my way back. And it was really, really grueling to come out of that coma. I think that fight was really just absolutely archetypal and epic. And when I, um, you know, and, and that really was a lot of the stuff. Subsequently, I've obviously looked at, you know, research and spoken to doctors. And, and a lot of that is quite typical of coma patients because you're on life support. You, I had a tracheotomy. I was being fed by tubes. And what happens is the body is fighting this invasive processes. And as much as this book is at times absolutely hilarious, because my humor style has always been my writing style, it also, I think, conveys the absolute madness I was I was going through, right? Absolutely. No, it, it definitely comes through, no, 100%. And I just want to say that you were not alone. And through the entire process of Llewellyn's illness and through everything you went, went through, I just want to say that you have support throughout you have close family Llewellyn had close family apart from from Neil Colin and everyone the doctor Murray your close your 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 doctor who was also your close friend who supported him every step of the way in the decisions that he took um your your friends your your three friends who who were you had close support and and I mean I think that was vital every step of the way and I think that for people who go through trauma and through, I think every step of everyone's journey, I think no matter what we go through in life, you have to find that support system. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just unbelievable support. I was held on every physical level by my community but those journeys that we go through like this I'm going to call them soul journeys underworld journeys journeys of initiation journeys of crossing between life and death in those journeys we are alone with something bigger and that was the terrifying thing for me was that absolute awareness that I was standing there alone and exposed and 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 in this place And even though there was all these things out there, these beautiful support, there was a spirit guide that came to me in the, in the world and helped me to come back to my body. There was beautiful people. I felt the presence of departed people and loved ones. This was just that journey in which I took alone. And then when I came back and I was back in this, this 3d reality, this world we live in where, you know, we eat and we taste and we're, we construct these little, these wonderful lives around us. I was again held by my community and helped back. And again, that huge support was just what pulled me through. But you're still saying that even with that, when you are out there alone, you're unaware of that support. You're unaware that these people are, are back there waiting for you. Not children, not parents, not loved ones. The only people I was aware of were people who I would call have, have had passed on many times or who I knew were out there looking, guiding my way. Otherworldly beings, but the earthly connections were no longer relevant to me. 
That's incredible. That just shows you that you come into the world alone and <laughs> there are certain things that we have to experience on our own and there's clarity that needs to be gained on our own that we need to experience on our own. And in order to do that, we need to go through that alone. And no matter who's supporting us, who's with us, who we have gathered together in order to gain that support, there are certain things we need to go through on our own. And the clarity comes. Yeah, and we forget that, you know, we, we kind of rely so much on externalizing stuff. And, you know, later in the day when my journey, my deep journey was with fear, again, that was a, a journey I took alone. I had to learn to, to conquer my fear. Nobody could help me. It doesn't matter what people say when you're in the middle of the night and you're being struck by anxiety or panic or fear or worry. Like that is, it's an inward journey again. And as much as we grab onto other people and other things, like we have to go deep within to overcome these times. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are going to chat a bit shortly about what came after, because of course there is an after and the after happened in Greece of all places. And funny enough, I love the fact that your kids said, oh, Greece, when you said, let's go live in Greece. And they said, oh, Greece, where Mamma Mia was. And <laughs> that was there. That was, that was how they identified. You know, exactly. That's all that knew of Greece, you know. And then my son woke up a sort of a day after we left, uh, arrived in Greece, sobbing and said, where are all the singers, mom? And where are the White House? <laughs> Nobody's singing. <laughs> yeah, where are those little white houses and, and all of that? Absolutely. But we are going to get to that shortly when we wrap up. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. You're listening to People of the Book and I'm Janice Liebowitz. I'm chatting to Sarah Bullen about her book, Love and Above. So Sarah, after the trauma and after Llewellyn's passing, after you recovered from your coma and your anomaly, your medical anomaly, which was just mm -hmm. you, you picked up your children and decided to go and take some time out in Greece. And your children agreed to it. I think they probably also needed some time out, if I'm not wrong. After everything you'd been through, I think there was a bit of an epiphany. Talk to me about the seven gates. Briefly, nutshell it for me. Yeah, so I'm going to, I will. But Before you know, we wrap up. Right. So there I was, I had nearly lost my life. My husband had died. I'd been in this crazy otherworldly experience. And I, I had to learn to walk again. I had to learn to talk again. I had to, I lost all my hair. And I was sitting one night at a dinner party with the same friends. We're having the same conversation I'd had four years ago. We're eating the same food. I was shopping at the same shop. I was going to the same Vida. And some part of me looked down at my life. And I thought to myself, I looked at that person at that dinner party talking all the same nonsense that I was talked. And I thought, that is not you anymore. That person is, you are not that. And then it became the question of, well, how do I become something else? How do I have a new life? And as you said, what I had to do was something quite radical. And I, it meant that I went against what everybody said. And what they said is stay safe, take the medication, send your children to psychiatrists, psychologists, keep them at school, go back to normal. Just this get the therapy and you'll be fine. This too shall pass, you know, just give it time. And I just went, no. No, I don't want to be pulled into the same. I want something different and I am going to create it. I'm going to create it by 
choosing differently, by choosing joy and delight and love and fun. And really just to backtrack before the seven gates, Janice, and that was what the message I think you're going to hear in the book. And it was just before I woke up from the coma when the my spirit guide, um, who'd been really helping me get back in my body, leant down and he gave me a instruction. And he kissed me on the head. And the instruction he gave me was have more fun. And I was just outraged. You know, I wanted something deep and profound. And I was like, what are you, what is this? But over time, and as I came back into this world and in a life, I realized that that is what this is, this game we have. Like we, we take it so seriously and we're so stuck in victimhood or pain or blame. Or, and where is the fun and the delight and the joy in all of that? So my decision Absolutely. was to really chase it down hard. And I really started to, to work on myself and in a process that I was over seven steps. And, and I really used that because I do storytelling. And I tell old ancient stories to crowds and to women's circles. And I often speak about the goddess Inanna who descended into the underworld. Um, and she went through seven layers of the underworld to get to the bottom. And in every layer, she had to surrender something of who she was. Um, and the first, you know, place I entered was just to embrace this in-between space. You know, we want to fix it or we want these hard times to end, but they don't always end. And so I really had to just accept that I'm in this weird time, in this weird space. And I just let myself be in this waiting place for a while. And the second gate or, you know, journey I went on, the next underworld step or the, the threshold I crossed was just to allow great loss. You know, I had to release who I was. I was a mother, that's right. I wasn't a wife. I wasn't any of these things anymore. I wasn't, I wasn't normal. I wasn't, I was different. I was altered and I had to let the old person go. And that's why I started to make physical ways of letting that go. And then I moved into the silence, which was really stunning. What, what was going to emerge next? What is going to come next? Because I didn't know. And when that decision came to move to Greece, it came out of nowhere, out of that deep silence of listening to what is being whispered quietly, those little messages. And that was the, the fifth gate I entered, was just practicing deep listening, allowing myself to hear a bigger intelligence, a wiser voice. And I, I really practiced, not the people, not the friends, not the well-meaning, not the doctors. But when you shut all that out, what is that bigger voice saying? Some people call it intuition. I just called it my own thing. And then I had to make new vows. I had to go, I'm not going to be this old person. But if I don't want to be it, I have to make new things happen. So I made a whole lot of files. Some of, some of them are quite funny, which I share with you in the book. One is that I will never wear black ever again. I'll never have. Another was that I would choose joy every time, whenever it was on offer. I would choose adventure. I would say yes to it again and again. And then I also made a vow, of course, that I would be celibate for a year because I felt like I was on a journey and I didn't want to think that I was finding this love and this joy with another person. And then I had to cross the threshold. And this was the sixth gate I had to cross. I decided to cross the threshold into something new. And that was that decision. Yes, I'm going to Greece. Yes, I'm pulling my children out of school. No, I don't speak a word of Greek. And I no, just I don't say, know. you're saying, yes, I'm pulling my children out of school. It was 100% with their consent. They wanted to go. They agreed to it. They said yes. So please um, don't think. <laughs> 
<laughs> they were seven and they were seven. She just pulled nine. them out and said, "We're going." With with them kicking and screaming, that's not what happened. Yeah. They were seven and nine. They were highly traumatized. My son was having just panic attacks, relentless. Um, and he was just waking up in cold sweats. I couldn't be away from him at all. My daughter was highly traumatized, and I just went, "We're going to do something different." The headmaster was very unhappy. They really put a lot of pressure on me not to do this. And I just, I had this deep knowing, you know, this deep knowing that I was going to do this. And that was the last step of gate I, I speak about in the book is that you just have to trust in grace. That somehow there is so much good out there. There is so much and to deeply believe that your life is guided. And I felt that. I knew that. I felt that in the universe. I knew there was bigger and richer stuff out there. And I just had to trust that we are guided and that we have to follow those voices that arise when we shut out all of these other things. And that's how I ended up on a crazy little Greek island, the island of Tantra and love, the island in which the word lesbian came from because it was Lesbos. So it was just all these madly crazy people all gathered in one tiny village. And that is where I spent the next four years. And I just want to say that throughout the book, I know, you know, you say intuition, but your intuition serves you throughout your book. And I just want to say like intuition, listen to your intuition because it's there for a reason and it speaks to you and go with your gut, whatever you call it, your gut, your intuition, your inner voice, listen to it because throughout the book, you listen to it and it's, it's always telling you something and it's always right. And I love that. It's uh, these seven gates are uh, fabulous, and I mean, I could we could talk for for ages about so much more, but unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. Sarah, it's been amazing, amazing talking to you and and hearing about the journey that you went on, and Llewellyn's journey. Thank you so much for sharing that with me, and and with my listener. Thank you. And tell tell me quickly, where is the book available? So my pleasure. And the book is, should be in all good bookstores around South Africa. It is on Amazon. So you can just search for Love and Above or Sarah Bullen. Um, and it's also available on Loot and they deliver overnight. So loot.co.za. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me this morning. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. And my dear listener, as I always tell you, take care of yourself, take care of each other, get vaccinated, boosted if you're able to and read a book. <laughs>